Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. We're here on 3CR every Saturday at midday to promote and defend public education as well as the separation of church and state. Today's episode of the DOGS program features a discussion from the third episode of Jane Caro's webinar series, Reasonings with Jane. This week's talk is titled Reasonings with Jane, Hard Lessons with Chris Bonner. Firstly, we'll have our weekly press release, and this week it's press release 930, Waiting for Gonski and Separation of Religion and the State. Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner have, according to Jane Caro, recently published a forensic and gripping analysis of the needs policy in Australian education from Carmel to Gonski. The main reason they give for the abject failure, which has led to growing disadvantage and inequality in Australian education, is found on pages 264 to 266 of their book, The Power of the Private Religious School Lobby Groups. They wrote, quote, Why did the private school lobby groups prove to be so powerful? In part, it's because in any contest over school funding, they begin with some distinct advantages. They represent some very wealthy people, and when a stoush goes public, they are guaranteed to have a significant section of the Murdoch media on their side. They have deep connections and almost unlimited access to our politicians. A letter home from a principal or a sermon delivered from a pulpit is likely to receive the kind of respectful hearing a politician cannot rely on, no matter the merits of their argument. In 2017, it was a critical reason why the shortened Labor opposition went in to bat for the private school sector against Gonski 2.0. And Labor was rewarded handsomely when the Catholic lobby made thousands of robocalls and principals sent letters home to parents on their behalf, end quote. Yet, although there is a very extensive and well-documented analysis of the pressure placed by religious groups on the state, which has led to the current inequalities and shoveling of disadvantaged children into underfunded, run-down public schools, Greenwell and Bonner come up with an astonishing solution. Their analysis concentrates upon the main differences between religious and public schools as the difference between fee charging and free education. They also prove that religious schools are now costing the taxpayer as much, if not more, than public schools. And the economic argument that such schools save the government money no longer applies. Instead of looking at Finland, which is not mentioned in their book, the solution they advocate is the integrated systems of New Zealand and Canada. They believe that parents who wish to choose a religious education for their children should be paid by the taxpayer to do so. They suggest that religious schools should be fully funded but no longer charge fees. After their analysis of the shenanigans of the religious lobby in the last 50 years, one is gobsmacked at their naivety. Dogs are saddened by the Bonner-Greenwell solution. The authors have done a very comprehensive historical analysis of the last 50 years, and their hearts are in the right place. But they have forgotten, if they ever knew, about where our public system came from and why a dual system has always separated both our children and the society. They have separated our children on the basis of class, but they also wish to separate them on the basis of creed. This is called sectarianism. Religious schools are sectarian schools. They can and do separate children, teachers and employers on the basis of religious belief as well as their ability to pay fees. Religious schools have never cared about all the children. They are only concerned about those with the first-class ticket to heaven and the good job. If tempted with taxpayer funding, religious men have quickly succumbed to mammon. Our public system was the old 19th century Irish national system which attempted to solve the sectarian problem and bring children together. It was opposed and throttled by the Irish Catholic 
bishops and Presbyterian church in Ireland. The result is the sectarian warfare in 20th and 21st century Ireland. Australia was more fortunate. For a century, we had more than three quarters of our children in public schools open to all, including 25% of Catholic children, many of whom were too poor to attend fee-paying Catholic schools. A child's religion is not a matter for discrimination in our public schools. Greenwell and Bonner opposed the separation of children on the basis of the ability of their parents to pay, but they do not put their minds to the task of considering the separation of children on the basis of belief. History is full of tales of the most brutal wars of all, the wars of religion. So dogs would wish to remind our listeners of the reasons why the Americans of the Enlightenment placed the First Amendment in their constitution and why Inglis Clark and Higgins were responsible for placing a similar clause, section 116, in our constitution. Church and State magazine published the following article, Keep Your Distance, Why the Framers Were So Adamant about separation of church and state by Frank Breslin. We have a long tradition in America of separation of church and state that prohibits government's promotion of a religion on the one hand and interference with its free exercise on the other. In their refusal to establish a state church or to favour one religion over the other, the founding fathers didn't think that religion was bad but that there was something amiss in human nature, a certain tendency, a will to power and a lust for domination that has always bore watching. It was a virus that lay dormant until its host came to power, whereupon that person or group became suddenly rabid with a mania that sought to convert, punish or persecute anyone not of their fold or persuasion. Paradoxically, the guise under which this malady manifested itself, as the history of Europe made only too plain, was religion. The founders thought that religion, something good in itself, could be used towards either good or bad ends, and unless preventative measures were taken, could induce in the susceptible a madness so malignant and vicious as to destroy the very essence of religion itself. By persecuting whoever refused to accept their religion or whose lives were deemed insufficiently religious, those in power could impose a religious tyranny so suffocating in its grip, scope and intensity that one involuntary involuntarily thinks of barbed wire and concentration camps. Various theories have tried to account for this bizarre aberration, the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the ascent of man from beasts, innate human depravity, the Freudian id, defective genes or bad social engineering. But more important than those theories themselves is the lesson to be drawn from those institutions that promise heaven on earth. Given the weak human vessels in which this religious feeling resides, even this noblest sentiment could become tragically twisted and unleash on the world unspeakable horror. Immanuel Kant's words come to mind when considering such would-be utopians and their spiritual gulags. Nothing was ever made straight with the crooked timber of humanity. In government, the need for transparency, accountability and investigative journalists, assuming they haven't been censored, banned, imprisoned or shot, is not a casual suggestion, but the sin qua non for maintaining even a pretense of institutional integrity. Human nature is self-contradictory and prone to temptation, especially when the camera's not running or the press isn't present. And no matter the institution, it's always wise to audit the books, both the official ones and the real ones hidden in the back office safe. Politicians, as the saying goes, campaign in poetry but govern in prose, so that we'd better distrust whatever they're saying and doing by an ironclad system of checks and balances, fact-checking and vigilant oversight. 
As soon as they pass a law, they'll invite a lobbyist to insert a loophole, recalling Juvenal's admonition, who shall guard the guards themselves? Even religion can be dragged into the mire by persecuting those of another faith or of no faith at all until, weakened by torture, the unfortunates would end their suffering by conversion or death. So to prevent these abuses of power, as had occurred in old Europe when Catholics persecuted Protestants, Protestants persecuted Catholics, Protestants persecuted other, other Protestants, and both Protestants and Catholics persecuted the Jews, the founders erected a wall of separation between church and state as a safeguard against such outrages. They wanted to put an end to intolerance, bigotry and sadism that wore the flattering garb of religion and spoke in the sanctimonious accents of self-promotion. They believed that what they were doing was ushering something new into this world, Novus Ordo Seculorum, or a new order of the ages. See the back of the $1 bill. America was to be a radically new experiment in government which, like ancient Athens, would show the world that free men had no need of princes and kings and could govern themselves. No wonder royal courts of Europe hoped this fledgling experiment wouldn't succeed lest the contagion of democracy spread to their people. The founders refused to involve government in religion, religious quarrels or animosities that for centuries had convulsed Europe's political landscape. Under stressful conditions, similar hostilities might also threaten our newfound nation, already a powder keg of sectarian tensions. Lending the power of the state to favour any one denomination or religion over another could exacerbate those mutual suspicions still further that might suggest the beginning of an established state church. A wall of neutrality would keep government from pitting one church or religion against another, a policy that had fanned the flames of centuries-old hatreds. Every religion must therefore be allowed to worship in its own way with neither interferences nor support from the state. Everyone must be protected from religious enthusiasm, as that quaint 18th century phrase understatedly put it. The only service government could render religion was to stay out of its way as long as one religion did not interfere with another. This was an insight only painfully arrived at after generations of bloodshed as monarchs imposed their own religion on all subjects. Cutus regio, aeus religio, whose realm, his religion. To unify and transform their dominions into virtual theocracies to facilitate rule. The old world was replete with examples of such murderous fury as competing factions virtually butchered one another in the conviction that they were doing God's will. Intending to bring their countries together, kings only managed to tear them apart. The founders were only too well acquainted with this blood-drenched chronicle and they resolved to keep such hatreds far removed from our shores. History has taught them that bringing religion into the public arena was to let loose a monster. Still raw in their memory were the anti-Catholic Gordon riots of 1780 that only 11 years earlier had shocked all of Europe as parts of London were left in flames. It was a vivid reminder, if anyone needed, of the deadly contagion of enthusiasm. If Gordon had prevailed against the British government, there was no telling whether the outcome would have turned back the clock two centuries when Protestants murdered Catholics only to be followed by Bloody Mary's retaliation upon her Protestant subjects. It would have been the same sad old tale of religion's, religion's debasement by score-settling, persecution, torture and death. Religion was nitroglycerin that had to be contained for everyone's safety. So, the separation clause was added to the Constitution as the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. 
It was imperative that governments stay out of religion, neither encouraging nor impeding its practice. It makes admirable sense since every religion or even non-religion is thereby protected. Every faith is of equal value since government plays a neutral role. Plays a neutral role, that is, except when one religion or denomination harasses or persecutes another faith's members who refuse to believe as that religion dictates. Government then intervenes to protect the innocent. This policy of separation is still on the books and with good reason. Human nature never changes. There are still groups today whose agenda is converting and persecuting, hating and perhaps even murdering those of other faiths, denominations or of no faith at all to save them from themselves and the fiery furnace to come unless these lost souls submit and see the light. Or, more exactly, the light by submitting to them who claim to know the innermost secrets of God himself, as if the Almighty were only the God of their particular denomination or faith alone, instead of the God of them all under different names. What a sorry little God he would be if he weren't more open-minded than his close-minded children who insult him by their demeaning image of him and use their caricature as their puppet who tells them alone what he wants for their country or political party. Whether such proselytising zeal is disguised aggression, megalomania or repressed self-doubt that feels both threatened and driven to convert others to dispel that doubt, these are very dangerous people and should never be part of government or have their theological views of the second coming guide an administration's foreign policy towards Israel and that tinderbox of the Middle East. And yet, unbeknownst to themselves, these individuals render the nation an inestimable service by being a constant reminder of the very reason for upholding this separation of church and state. The Founding Fathers believed that religion was and must always remain a private affair because bringing the volatility of religious enthusiasm into the public arena, arena would only trivialise religion and destabilise the nation. They feared the political effects of interdenominational feuding, the polarisation caused by doctrinal differences, the demonisation of dissenters and the eruption of religious intolerance and hatred. However, there also was a second reason why the founders feared religion in politics. The rise of religious opportunists who would inflame political passions to promote themselves. Religion would become in the, in the hands of these charlatans a theatrical performance and political tool to hypocritically showboat their piety to manipulate voters for political gain. An unscrupulous politician could disguise his lack of convictions by putting his finger in his mouth and holding it up to the wind to determine which way the wind was blowing and telling his audience whatever he thought it wanted to hear. This individual well understood the art of inciting enthusiasm or hysteria towards some plan of action and call it the will of God. The founders would have blanched at politicians returning to their constituents and pandering to their sincerely held religious convictions to gain a following or court popularity. Not that they couldn't take part in religious services as private citizens, but not as representatives of their government, lest people think they were lending the prestige of their office to their particular church or religion. These founders also knew their Bible as it played such a pivotal role in their 18th century world. They knew of Christ's admonition in Matthew 6 about not playing the hypocrite by standing on the street corner and making a public display of one's piety, for one would have already received one's reward. Instead, one should withdraw to one's room, close the door, and in privacy pray to God. Grandstanding did not count as prayer with the Lord. As experienced men of the world, they knew only too well how politicians might cynically abuse religion to seek power and votes.
an article by Frank Breslin, uh, an American teacher of only over 40 years' experience, uh, making the point that the dogs would like to make also how important it is to separate church and state and why the outcome described by Bonner and Greenwell in their book is not ideal from the dog's perspective because church and state must be separated. There can be no setting up of a state religion because, as they say, religious enthusiasm is a very, very dangerous tool in the arsenal of the bigot. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. You're still listening to The Dogs Program on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Now we'll go straight into the chat with Jane Caro and Chris Bonner. Lovely to be here. Lovely to be talking to my old mate, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thank you, Hannah. I'm afraid there are no whiteboards or chalkboards where I am. Nevertheless, Chris spent a fair amount of his time in front of both, I should imagine. Um, How long were you uh, an educator in schools for, Chris, all told? Jane, I've lost count. But then again, I've been retired 15 years, so I've probably done that deliberately, you know. But I think about, about 40 years, 38 years from memory. Yeah, and you're, the last school you were principal of was Davidson High School, correct? Davidson High School, and before that, Asquith Boys, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you're also the president of the New South Wales Secondary Principals Council for some time. Yeah, five and, years. Is, uh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. yeah. So there's not a lot happening in schools that you don't know all about. <laughs> and, and indeed, in 2007, you and I wrote a book together. In fact, we the first- did. Yeah, first book I'd ever written, but you'd written some geography textbooks. I remember that. (laughs) The Stupid Country, we called it, How Australia is Dismantling Public Education. That book we really wrote, I think, as a warning, didn't we? We Um, did. mm. Do you think the warning worked? Have things gotten better or have they gotten worse? (laughs) No, look, I think, well, they've they've got worse. Um, Basically, and but we were right to do that book and I'm glad we did because we raised a whole lot of things that have uh, actually transpired since then and we brought those those perspectives you know you had a parental and I had a teacher perspective on school so it was it I think we were well grounded there Mm, mm. and I know I know in both cases our lived experience of schools was telling us that something's going really wrong here Mm. um, and that our weird sort of public private hybrid system was increasing the differences and the chances of kids that were well off and kids that weren't. Yeah, yeah. And and that's what we've seen to come to pass ever since. I mean, Australia still has a huge equity gap between the kids who walk through the gate with plenty of social capital from, you know, well-resourced, well-educated families mm. in comparison to those who walk in through the school gate with very little of that. I think at the time... Jane, we could never have imagined that it would deteriorate. No. That all that would get worse. And that's and that's been a fairly frightening experience in so many ways because you could think, you know, that it wouldn't get worse. Mm. Um, but we were, uh, I mean, we'll get on to this, but the Gonski mm. Review, what it achieved and what it didn't achieve has been a big part of that. Yeah, because we got our hopes up, didn't we? We thought things might get better mm. and that we might start funding. Because because basically, let me just encapsulate what I think is the, the central problem of funding education, which then becomes the central problem of education in this country, and that is that we actually put the most money, and I'm not talking about sources, but the most money in total, behind the kids who need the least and the least money total behind the kids who actually need the most uh, resources. So we're, we're actually, you know, governments love to tell us, oh, we've, you know, increased the funding to schools by this much as if that has any effect. But it has no effect if what you're doing is giving it to the wrong kids. I mean, a dressage centre with the great, greatest will in the world, I'm sure it's great fun for the girls and boys who like horse riding, but is it going to add anything to our educational attainment? Mm. Yeah, look, we are overfunding we actually spend a lot of money on education in this country, 
And politicians are constantly bleating that we're spending a lot of money and not getting much in return in terms of student results. But of course, the money's not going. It's like if I had two glasses of water, one was half full and one was full, and I kept adding water to the full glass. You're not going to get uh, much out of that. But if you add glass water to the half full glass, you're obviously getting an improvement, the value added and so on. And so we, we are spending it in the wrong directions. And, and neither the Gonski Review nor the Carmel Review going right back into the 1970s made an, made an impact. We just resumed business as usual after the Gonski Review, within months even. Yeah, within months. Yeah. I mean, there was some extra money that went into a lot of public schools, particularly those teaching very disadvantaged kids because of the uh, loadings for kids with a specific disadvantage. Mm. Mm. And I dare say a lot of that money was uh, very gratefully received. I know that a lot of principals being wise to the ways of extra money coming to public schools immediately put it into things that couldn't be taken away like commercial kitchens and science laboratories, <laughs> like actual <laughs> nailed to the walls <laughs> that no one could take it off them. Um, yeah, even yeah. if what those kids might have needed was specialist programs or more support teachers, because those people, those things can always be taken away from you again, and that's the problem. Yeah, I remember you and I wrote an article when the Gosky Review came out, and because the review was going to fund the needy students, Mm. substantial loading of funding going to needy, needy students. At the time, we, we thought, and it was a reasonable thing to think, mm. that uh, this would sort of create a balance between schools, that the, the schools that were funded the least or we, when kids had the greatest needs would, would be properly funded and that would create an incentive for schools to actually enrol mm. some of the more of the strugglers. But it didn't happen. Yeah. And the reason it didn't happen is that the funding basically was was hijacked in a sense hijacked uh, partly by the by the stipulation enforced on Julia Gillard that no school should lose any money at all no school school should lose a dollar so it meant that the Gonski review had to catch up had to increase the total amount of funding so that the least funded schools was would eventually get somewhere but and they um, did that and they did that to appease the richest schools so they actually increase the expense of the whole system because the only way they could help the poorest and most disadvantaged yes. children yes. was by protecting the privilege of the richest yes. and most advantaged children. Well, I mean, it's fascinating. Absolutely. And, and the other thing, Jane, is that I didn't realise so much at the time is that really the high-fee Protestant schools had, <clears throat> in effect, they had an alliance with the, with the Catholic system. And in the Catholic system, in fairness, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of those schools were still quite low funded, but there was this alliance so that when funding, when funding claims were made and funding increased, the high-fed Protestant schools were there with their hands out as well. So they sort of shielded themselves behind the Catholic system in a sense because it worked to the advantage of both. Mm. And to make a breakthrough there, we have to break that alliance. Yeah. You pointed out in numerous articles, and one in particular that I quote a lot, where you point out that it has now gotten to the point where there are some mostly Catholic schools, but some Christian and um, other denomination mm. schools, that now get as much public funding per student, and in some cases more public funding per student, than the similar public school down the road or in the next suburb. Now, that is, is relatively new. There was some of that at the time of Gonski, but really the panel didn't pay close attention to the, the fact that that was happening. And I always cite Goldman as a wonderful example of this. Now, don't get me wrong, on, a, it, on average, public school students get funded at much higher levels, but of course, public schools teach the most expensive kids in the most expensive locations mm. from the most needy families. So obviously they're going to get funded, but when you compare schools, they're enrolling generally enrolling similar students. Because we've got to remember that state aid to church schools rolled out, or the symbolic beginning, in a sense, was Goldman, when uh, the uh, Catholic community there said, all right, if you're not going to give us any money to help our schools, we'll send them to your schools. Mm. And, and that, that was 66 at the height of the baby boom, wasn't it? 62, 62. 62, sorry. Mind you, mind you, it was a rolling, it was a rolling campaign. And then, uh, so governments obviously responded by saying, oh, my goodness, you know, this could cost us a fortune. So that actually established a bit of an urban myth that having private schools saves the public purse. Well, 
to an extent, it may have at that at that time, but that gradually that rap actually rapidly diminished. And by the turn of the century, it was clear that the non-gov sector was getting a substantial amount of public money. Now I cite Goldwyn as a wonderful example because if they tried that on again and sent all the kids from the Catholic schools to Goldwyn's public schools, the saving to the Australian taxpayer would be two million dollars a year. <laughs> <coughs> it would actually cost us less. It would cost less. And there's so many examples because we have in Australia, we have we have choice of schools. Now, to have choice of schools, you've got to duplicate the number of schools that you have. You actually have to have more schools than you need. So, of course, in every little town in Australia, you have the local public school and the local Catholic school. And I did a couple of random. Actually, I chose Adelong in New South Wales, which is near where I grew up. And you can work out what would happen if you merged the two schools, how much you would save. And I think from memory, it was about $150,000 a year which if, if it ever happened, you could plough back into the local school and the local community mm. um, instead of having this ridiculous duplication of school. Now, I know there's more to it than that, and, and, and some people prefer a Catholic education, but this probably, I don't know this is the time, but to take us back to when public education was established and what we did right and what we did wrong. But, we, yeah, we can get to that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think the thing is, that some people may prefer a Catholic education, some people may prefer a Muslim education or Jewish education, but we're the only country which goes around paying huge amounts of money for people to have that kind of choice. The one thing I think we are by far the most generous funders of private schools in the world. No, no other country comes within cooey of us. It's quite a peculiar system that we have developed here. But and, and the one thing I think that Gonski actually did really achieve was it did change the rhetoric. It didn't actually change what governments did, but it mm. changed the rhetoric because prior to Gonski, um, the whole central tenant of our, our education system was about parental choice, providing parental choice. Um, my problem with that was always very simple. If you make parental choice the centre of your public education system or your education system, you can only entrench underprivilege and overprivilege because no child is disadvantaged through any of their own doing. They're disadvantaged because they've been born into a family where for whatever reason, the parents are are less able to negotiate their way through the society. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you make what parents choose for their children the be-all and end-all, then wealthier, more advantaged parents will simply pass on their wealth and and advantage to their kids. That's fine. No one minds that. What they mind is that that then holds the other children down in underprivilege with no way of getting out. Yeah, because, you see, choice in Australia comes at a cost. Hmm. So that means then then that parents that are choosing are paying. And um, the impact of that is that basically non-government schools, because they charge fees, uh, are attracting a high SES enrolment profile mm. now the, the critical thing about that and of course leaving the the free schools because it's a fee versus free situation leaving mm. the free schools <clears throat> and, and catering for those who can't afford to, to pay now if you build a system around affordability that choice is about affordability you're going to create in fact if we sat down 40 years ago and say look let's create a, a social apartheid system of schools you know we did it the best possible way yeah. because then we have one set of schools that uh, you pay to go in and obviously in the end enrolls a, a much higher SES profile of kids and another school that has in the end a much lower SES profile of students. Now, the critical importance of that is that Gonski didn't discover but Gonski emphasised the impact of having a large number of strugglers in disadvantaged schools. Mm-hmm. We all know that student achievement overwhelmingly is linked to family background. Mm-hmm. But what's more important than that is the SES profile of peers in the schools that the kids attend. So if you've got a system that pulls out the most advantaged kids and puts them, crowds them together in advantaged schools and leaves the strugglers literally in a class of their own, it's had a massive impact on overall Australian achievement, school achievement. It's the elephant in the room, Jane. It's lumbering around and we're even very good at tiptoeing around. It's dropping, so give me We avoid that issue. Yeah. And the avoidance actually reached 
diabolical proportions. Every new minister for education, federally and even state, will do anything, will do anything at all disguised as school reform rather than address that central problem. Yeah. Until we address that central problem, we're in strife. Yeah. Because oh, even, the, even the efforts that ministers for education make to introduce reforms at the school level, they won't get anywhere while ever we're crowding the strugglers together in disadvantaged schools. Mm. It becomes very expensive. They're not achieving at those levels. The role models have gone. The teaching situation is, very, is far more difficult. Teacher expectations are inevitably a curriculum breadth, all sorts of things come together in those schools to make teaching tough. And I mean, I always hark back to the stories, you know, oh, let's 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 parachute the best teachers into the struggling schools. <laughs> That'll make a difference. But in the meantime, all the aspirant kids have gone out the back door yeah. to schools further up the SES ladder. Because enrolment shift in Australia. We talk about shift from public to private schools. That's not completely the story. The, the, the shift is from low SES to high SES schools, regardless of sector. And I think that, that we then compound the issue because at least when the rhetoric changed from parental choice to sector blind needs based, mm -hmm. it was a moment where you thought, well, all right, if we're going to have this situation where parents all want to put their uh, higher SES kids in the same schools, and we've got these other schools that are dealing with the kids who already are the most disadvantaged, at least if we do needs-based sector blind, those schools will start to get the lion's share of the public funding. We might get smaller class yeah, sizes. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, might yeah, actually yeah. get remedial programs. We might, yeah, get, yeah, yeah. we might actually say we want the highest achieving teachers in those schools because yeah. that's the toughest end of it. We might actually mm. say, and, and we might actually make some of those low SES schools actually schools of choice because they become really uh, superb at what they do because we resource and help them to do that. But we didn't do that, even that. We didn't even no, do that. No, we didn't. That. We didn't do that. And look, Jane, let me, let me make one thing perfectly clear. We're not about blaming parents in the choices no. that they make, and that's not at all. Not at all. I mean, you know, I've been through that as parents and grandparents, whatever, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult conversation in homes. I understand that. But the system's wrong. The structure's wrong. And you can't blame parents for that. And you can't blame parents for, for wanting those choices. Well, in fact, what we do in the book is if by restructuring the system, we can actually, oddly enough, increase choice or make choice more widely or, and, and divorce choice from family wealth. Mm. And that means you, you create a situation where you're no longer stratifying your education system because, Jane, in every community in Australia, the independent school that happens to be in that community enrolls the most advantage of the local population. In fact, it's ICSIA value on the My School website for the technically minded is about uh, 1,070, 1,075. Next in the pecking order is the local Catholic school, where across Australia the average ICSIA is... 1,035, then down, down the rank is the local government school where the average year is about 985. So it is a hierarchical system. Mm -hmm. It's a class-based system, whichever, you know, whatever loose yeah. way uh -huh. you define class. I mean, it's, it's a complex class-based system, hmm. but that's what we have. Yeah, we have. And, most and it doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver, uh, Jane. No, it, our educational achievements have been, as a nation, have been slipping and they've been slipping since the year 2000 when the SES scheme was introduced by John Howard. Coincidence? Oh, probably. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, it's associated with it, Jane, with, with no cause and effect. Causation no, no. is not, correlation is not causation, <laughs> let's say. Yes, indeed. And but disadvantage it, is not destiny, Julia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes, I Sorry, do. Sorry, Julia, it in actually is. In Australia, it is. Disadvantage <laughs> is destiny. Absolutely it is. Unlike almost the rest of the world who use their education system to try and break down class systems, we use ours to try and create one. And worse than that, because I think there is hierarchies in all school systems that, you know, across the world you'll find inequalities, mm -hmm. you'll find mm -hmm. hierarchies. Mm -hmm. But we use the public funding not to close or to mm -hmm. minimise the hierarchy, we actually use it to drive and increase the yeah, hierarchy. In the, I remember in the 1980s in the United States there was the busing, the controversy over busing. Yes, I remember and, that and it was busing, busing for equality. Yeah, I understand, you know, there's all sorts of issues applying. 
we bust for segregation. Yeah. We, we bust for something the reverse. Yeah. Which is quite remarkable. In fact, in, the, in New South Wales alone, I think the pub, the transport, the transport builder carry kids from one side of Sydney to the other, uh, and other places, of course, is well, well above half a billion dollars each yeah. year. Can you imagine, just for a moment, let's imagine that, you know, you and I get to control the education system and change it the way we want to. And so most kids go back to going to the local neighbourhood school, public mm. school, free school, mm. primary and high school. Imagine how many kids would walk to school or bike to school. Imagine what that might do to their fitness the traffic on the roads. If you want to see what the traffic might be like if most kids went to their local school, try yeah. school holidays. Everybody yeah, yeah. comments about how the traffic, you know, evaporates. Yeah, because we haven't got all these, I'm sorry, I'm not as nice as you, aspirational parents, I was going to use another adjective, but I'll say aspirational, um, bus, you know, driving their kids halfway across town to get them to a school that they think <coughs> is Look, going to give do. them something that the nearby they one won't. <coughs> They do. In fact, in Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide, uh, it's between 50 and 60%, I think, of kids in public schools. Mm. Let's leave the other sectors out for the moment. In public schools come from outside the, outside the school's uh, drawing area. That is yeah. absolutely, that is huge. That yeah. is massive. And, and it's, um, it's ridiculous because you've probably got cars actually crossing as they go past each other. One car taking the kid from their suburb to this suburb and another car taking this kid to here, or both of them claiming that the schools they're leaving behind are terrible, sins of yeah, iniquity, yeah, you should yeah. never go near them, <clears throat> and to the other one, oh, no, highly desirable, yeah. purely because they're not do, next door. Yeah, governments are trying to do something about that. New South Wales government is tightening up on zoning, for example, because I'd have to say, Jane, <clears throat> is that uh, it's not just the non-gov sector that's the guilty party here. Look, I went from being principal of a lower middle-class secondary school to being principal of an upper middle-class central school, a secondary school. Now, my capacity to discriminate in who I enrol, my capacity increased substantially. Mm. Um, I didn't and I wouldn't. But, you know, high-demand schools, high-demand public schools, I have to say, play a bit of this game. And uh, in the book, we mentioned a couple of high demand public schools or one in South Australia in particular that really has. And look, Northern Sydney is the same. My school was a comprehensive high school, but like all other, <laughs> all other high schools in Sydney, we became sort of pseudo selective. In other words, we had the programs to attract the students that we would like to see walk through the door. That's not acceptable. And, yeah. and it's a funding, a funding system has to create advantages for schools that don't do that mm. and has to create penalties for schools that do. Mm, yeah, uh, private and public. But private and public. Nevertheless, it is galling. At least the kids at the selective school in, say, North Sydney boys or Sydney girls or whatever, at least their funding remains more or less the same and probably less than their public funding. Mm. The the public funding for a disadvantaged school in mm -hmm. the western suburbs of Sydney or in a mm -hmm. rural town. Mm -hmm. And, okay, there is still another inequality in that the wealthy parents of North Sydney boys and Sydney girls and whatever can fundraise much more effectively than mm -hmm. the lower FES parent body at another school. But at least the public funding act does actually take that into account and mm. is different within the public system oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, the yeah. higher SES <laughs> and the lower SES schools. Mm. The problem with the independent system and the Catholic system, as the review that Catherine Greiner ran into the Catholic system and how it distributed its Gonski money, discovered they don't do that at all. In fact, they do Rather the opposite, Chris. <laughs> They've been caught out. Been caught out about four times in the last half dozen eight years uh, by audits or inquiries of some sort, and including by the ABC when it blew yes. this up about three years ago. Yeah, look, the Catholic system is fascinating. They feel the need to compete with the high fee Protestant schools, and sure, there's some skewing. I, look, I don't know how much skewing of funding there is, but certainly on all these occasions, they found that. Uh, the funding was um, it was uh, badly directed. Um, Gonski himself, interestingly, about two weeks ago, said one of his regrets is that they allowed funding to go to systems to distribute as they wish, and um, 
they, they regret doing that and not having funding to all schools go to the specific schools. Yeah. And I think that's a good observation. Yeah. I mean, it is galling to think that there are schools in this nation that charge 15000 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50000 dollars a year that are still receiving substantial amounts of money in public funding. Because one of the things that we do that is very unusual is that we give public funding to fee charging schools without saying to them, you need to therefore cap your fees. In return for the public funding, you actually have yes. to have a lower fee that yeah. you will charge. And if you look, want to charge yeah. big fees, you shouldn't yeah. get public funding. Yeah, it's look, pretty look, yeah. Jane, you're right. You're right. Look, this was actually one of the weaknesses of the Gonski review, because I know, I know they took the attitude that encouraging parents to pay fees added to the total stock of resourcing for the school, school education in Australia. But that completely, completely ignored the regressive impact of fees, mm. uh, even static fees, let alone fees that were rising. So that remained unaddressed. It was unaddressed at the time of Carmel. It was unaddressed. It was well. It was actually addressed a little bit. And Carmel, the for those for those who don't know uh, oh, what sure. Carmel yeah. was, was a, re a review into schools uh, prior to Gonski. What about twenty years prior? Yeah. Look, Jason. The other thing is, can I can I just read a little extract? And can I say can I say that one of the comments about the book, incidentally, because because the middle three or four or five chapters are on the. Uh, political machinations after the Gonski Review came out. And um, my, my co-author, Tom, managed to turn what would be otherwise regarded as a tedious, uh, a tedious thing to write about mm. into, a, into a thriller. Oh, so, it is like a thriller. It's, it, 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 it's like a spy thriller. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, to show the mistakes, here's a quote from a, an academic who was commenting on the review, he said, the review contained no analysis of the social role of public schooling and of private schooling in its various forms and no overt analysis of the relationships between the sectors. It failed to go to the roots of inequalities in schooling and can be shown to have exacerbated inequalities in education. Mm -hmm. Now that's Simon Marginson, who's a well-known academic, but you know, he wasn't writing about the Gonski review. He's writing about the review back in the mid seventies. In other words, it was the same. Nothing changed. Those fundamental restructuring questions about school fees and the relationship between a private and public sector were just skirted over. It was too hard. And is it too hard, Chris? Is it too hard because it involves religious schools? Is that the core of, the, of our timidity, our trotting around, as you say, the elephant in the room? Is it because we've got this kind of, I don't know, fear of, of being seen to be sectarian, to go back to the old fights of the um, 50s and 60s, or we're being seen to be discriminatory in some mm -hmm. way, or we're yeah. just not allowed to talk about it? Look, we don't talk about it, and we made a mistake right from the beginning. Look, in contrast to much of Europe and the Canadian provinces and so on, and Britain after the Second World War, we created a public system that was open to all children but it never sufficiently met the expectations slash demands of Catholics in, in Australia. Now, you, there's two narratives about this. We can say, oh, well, the Catholics decided to take their ball and go and play another game. We, we can say that. Or we can say that the concept of public education probably didn't go far enough to, to um, acknowledge that uh, that church schools in exchange for certain conditions could be funded. Mm. Now, this is a bit, this is a bit controversial in, in the sense that it's a different interpretation of the beginning of public education. But in the Canadian Constitution, uh, in, the, in, the, in the formation of Canada in 1867, they established Catholic schools, or the Catholic schools were established and funded as part of the state's provision of education. Now, the argument there is not to integrate Catholic schools into a public system. The argument now is to fully fund them, but in exchange for very strict conditions about what these schools are to do and, they, and to increase their, their responsibility for behaving and operating and obligations and so on in a public way. Now is the time we can do that because we know they're funded almost equivalent to public schools 
we can now do that where we couldn't do it before. The only but, question... but, but that's different to public education. Mm. It's simply a series of schools that are now almost fully funded mm. are asked to do certain things in exchange for that funding. That's right, like not be allowed to pick and choose what students they educate. Absolutely, not be allowed to flick the kid down the road to my school in the 1990s yeah. and whatever, you know? Yeah. So, but the only question I'd ask about that, Chris, is currently it would seem to me that the uh, Catholic system, along with the rest of the private fee-charging schools, they've got their cake and they're eating it. Oh, of Why? course. Right. Why would they want to oh, of be fully funded in exchange for would. having to... Hey, hey and, and guilty, Jane, it's a wedge. It's partly a wedge. What a great position to be in, to offer full funding for Catholic schools and have an Archbishop protest back. vigorously and knock it back. The obvious response being, Archbishop, you mean you don't want poor Catholics in your schools? Mm. Would they knock it back? I don't know. It would certainly put the cat among the pigeons. And, and, look, and look, it's a challenge. Look, it's not, I don't mean that. I don't mean the wedge. It wasn't planned like that. But just see, these are the issues that we have to grab, grapple well, with. These are the issues that the archbishops have to, uh, have, that the bishops have to grapple with. Well, because we already know, you and I know, that the majority of the poorest Catholics, in fact, all the schools. Of course are in government schools, they're not in Catholic yeah, schools well, at all. Right, exactly right. Yeah. And because the majority... to do otherwise, to, to do otherwise, to do otherwise means finding some money. Or yeah. or being or being honored, bestowed, whatever, anointed to, to be uh, exempt from fees or whatever. And look, they do they do a fair bit of that, but it doesn't change the enrollment profile of the Catholic no. system. And they still they do it because the kids that they do it for. Um, add something to their marketing plan. Oh, Jane, look, look all these mechanisms, scholarships, whatever, bursaries, uh, they're, they're all selection methods, of course, yeah. and, 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 and selectivity in enrolment is, is absolutely rife in Australia. And we have to link funding to inclusiveness. Yeah, I think Until that's Until we do right. that, we're going to, our current problems are going to mount, and let me, let me tell you, they are mounting right now. They are, and we also have a situation... Uh, right across the board, interestingly enough, not simply in the public system, but right across the board, which seems to have been exaggerated by COVID, where teachers are leaving the profession in ever-increasing numbers and it's getting harder and harder to attract people to teach um, because we expect teachers, it seems to me, particularly teachers in disadvantaged public schools, to basically grapple with and overcome all of Australia's very wicked problems with poverty, with segregation, uh, with hierarchy, with a, with, a, with a huge class system that we won't even admit exists, um, and we pay them nothing. We give them yeah, yeah. new resources to do it with. We um, give them little respect. We don't, um, they're blamed whenever mm -hmm. the results go down, even though they're the only people struggling as hard as they possibly can to do something about it. <coughs> and then we're surprised when they say, you know what, I think I'll go and do something else. We are getting to a crunch point, I suspect, in terms of our education system. And if we go on like this, Chris, I mean, you, you educated young people for decades, 40 years. If mm. we go on like this, where we basically have some young people <coughs> who have a sense of entitlement that it must be very hard to go out into the world in, with. I often half joke, you know, there's all those statistics about the fact that still kids from comprehensive public schools do better at university than both their selective and their private school peers at university. There's, that research continues to be replicated and it's mm, the same mm. result every time. <coughs> I often half joke that the reason for that might be that it's a lot easier to go from one underfunded public institution to another <laughs> to underfunded to public institution <laughs> than going from some of those palaces of privilege because it always strikes me as weird, particularly with neoliberal governments, that they they fund private schools up the wazoo. I mean, some of them are so luxuriously resourced now Surely the parents must feel a bit embarrassed. Um, yeah, look, I'm sure the kids do. But yeah. the universities, they keep starving and cutting their, you know, they keep absolutely getting rid of academics, getting rid of the research, you know, starving them of funding, starving them of the ability to do their job. And what's the point of spending all that money getting a kid into a posh private school if yeah. the end result is an impoverished university? Bizarre. Yeah. Oh, 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 that's exactly right. The, the, other, the other thing that's possible to do with restructuring 
is just is to cut these schools adrift. Mm. Yes, because very if well. You had, if you had a system, if you had a system where you would be funded under certain conditions, mm. most of those high fee schools would cut themselves adrift. Yeah. They would become genuinely private schools, forming about oh about five percent, as they do in other equivalent countries. Yeah. So it would solve several problems. It would actually separate the school choosers from those who want, who authentically want, a religious perspective on their education of their kids, from those who just want to be above and better and better endowed than others. So it, it would put, the, as I say, put the cat among the pigeons there. And um, we really have to seriously look at the options to achieve that. Well, I, I often think to myself that it's kind of marketing 101 that the market will charge what the market will bear. And when we subsidise the, when we publicly subsidise private supply and we put no cap on fees and we ask for no reciprocal obligations, it can only be inflationary. It can't bring the price down. It can only send the price up because <clears> what <throat> the private supply will do, we've seen it in childcare, we've seen it in first home buyer schemes, <clears throat> and we see it in education, oh, is yeah, they, yeah. they pocket the subsidy, thanks very much, and then they <clears throat> go and charge the parents what they were going to charge them anyway. We completely waste that public money. It gets us nothing. Yeah, look, that actually you can, you can quantify that too, Jane, because, because um, the different sectors, as long as you're comparing schools that are enrolling similar kids, the different sectors actually churn out much the same results. Now, the schools do really the, well. Well, think of the possibility here, because every, every group of similar schools in Australia, you can identify the schools and the systems as the lowest cost provider to get these similar results. Now, almost, almost always it's the government system. It's the lowest cost provider. So what are these other schools spending more to get these same results? So that way you're able to calculate how much money governments and parents in this country waste. Yeah. And it adds up to, last time I did the calcs, it adds up to about $5 billion per year, round about half of which would be government funding. Can you imagine now, that, what that could buy? What that oh, well, five billion could get us? <clears throat> well, you divert it to the to these uh, schools in the with the kids in the greatest need, hmm. but it you know it's another it's another thing to think about when the pollies say, oh, we're spending so much money on education, but goodness me, the results aren't getting any better because the measurable results aren't getting... Oh, look, they have other things, of course. They might have ex-swim pools and whatever and drama rooms and all those things, all very good, uh, because they're locked in an arms race with competing schools anyway. Because <laughs> Parents who can pay that kind of money. But it comes at a public cost as well as a private cost. Yeah. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. That's all we've got time for this afternoon on the Dogs Program. Uh, we'll be back next week with everyone on board, hopefully. Uh, but if you'd like to find out more about the dogs, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.